going to be in Job 38 and 39 tonight. And before we go there, let me, let me pray for us. Let me pray for our time. God, we are so thankful that we get to gather tonight, that we get to study your word, that we get to humbly submit our lives to it. I pray, I pray that we wouldn't merely read this text, but that this text would read us, that we would learn more about who you are what you've done for us, and how it applies to our lives, and that we would leave with a new understanding of your grandeur, of your majesty, and be comforted in light of who you are. And we pray all these in your son's name. Amen. Job 38. Well, if you're anything like me, you hate to fly. Now, probably not for the reason that you might expect. I hate flying, not because I'm terrified that the plane is going to crash. I hate to fly because inevitably, when I sit by a stranger, they turn to me and ask me a question. And it's a question that's just always awkward. They say, what do you do for a living? And I just don't want to tell them I'm a pastor. One time, actually, this was about five years ago, I was sitting next to a woman, and I said, I'm a pastor, and she, her eyes kind of got big, and she goes, well, what kind of pastor? What denomination? And I was like, oh, no. And I said, well, Baptist. And she literally goes, oh, and took her, eye, her, take her, took her earbuds, put them in, and didn't say another word the entire time. And so... I think I've been scarred as a result of this, and I'm just terrified to tell anyone that I'm a pastor. And so recently I was on an airplane, and I'm sitting next to a stranger, and she asked me the inevitable awkward question, what do you do for a living? And I told her, I'm a pastor. And then I tried to be funny or something and be like, don't worry, I'm not going to convert you in the first 30 minutes, or I said something, you know, trying to be funny. And, um, and we got to talking, and she opened up her life. She really did. And she started telling me about how she used to go to church when she was little. She grew up in a religious home. But then she was a part of a church that there was a lot of abuse, a lot of terrible abuse. And she detailed it. And I'm not going to detail it for you here, but she explained it. And though she didn't say this exactly, these weren't her words, she more or less said, as a result of the suffering as a result of the evil that she experienced growing up, either God wasn't good, God wasn't in control, or maybe God was just a figment of her imagination. But regardless, because of the evil that had befallen upon her and her family as a result of being a part of this church, she just didn't want anything to do with God. Now put yourself in my shoes. I couldn't go anywhere. And so when she said that, what do, you, what do you say to her? What do you say in the midst of gross injustice and suffering and evil? How do you comfort? What words do you say? What sediments do you give in order to comfort a woman like that? 
I mean, just walk that way and go on Oregon State's campus. And I bet if you meet someone and you talk with them, either maybe an atheist or an agnostic or just someone who's non-religious, and you ask them maybe, what's one of the biggest barriers to putting your faith in God or believing that there is a God? I'll bet you that they would say, well, the problem of evil. The grossness of suffering in this world has made me come to the conclusion that there can't be a God. They can't reconcile those two truths, evil and God, right? But it's not just their problem, is it? It's, it's our problem. We have to do something with that question. I don't know if you've ever been in a hospital room and heard terrible news. You've heard the dreaded word cancer. How do you, how do you comfort someone in the midst of that? Or I was thinking of my grandfather recently, who five years ago heard probably one of the worst things he could hear about his wife of 55 years, that she had Alzheimer's. And slowly but surely, she would forget, and maybe even forget him. He probably can't even fathom life without my grandma. But she's going to forget. And had I been there, which I wasn't, what do you say? in the midst of Alzheimer's? What do you say to my grandfather to comfort him? Or maybe there's, maybe you're a spouse and you were on the computer one night and you just stumbled upon a browser history and you saw what your spouse was looking at. And then you're her friend or you're his friend. What do you say to them in the midst of that, the feeling of betrayal, of, of shame, of suffering? It's our problem, isn't it? And it's not just our problem, it's actually Job's problem too in our text. Job in chapter 1 and 2 goes through almost the unimaginable. He loses his family, his children, he loses wealth, material, he even physically is in pain with boils all over him. It's about as horrific as it can be. And there Job is. And then his friends come and they comfort him. And if it's not worse at all, they start accusing him. Basically, from chapter 4 to chapter 37, you have these friends of him who are pretty much saying, okay, when I look at your life, Job, when I see all that has happened to your life, the cursing and all the devastation that's happening, one conclusion seems to be inevitable. You must have sinned, Job. Right? This stuff happened to you as a result of your sin. And so, Job, just repent. Just name that, that which you've done and just repent. And Job, we actually know from chapters 1 and 2 that Job was blameless. We know that actually Job's sin didn't cause him to do that. But that was the logic of his friends. And we can relate to him. I don't know if you've ever hung out with kids who are maybe in high school and they grew up in the church and they're just rebelling. And if you ever hang out, I, I can probably guess you're wondering, I wonder what those parents did, right? We jump to that conclusion and go, well, if the Bible says that if you train up a child in righteousness, they won't depart. So these parents must not have trained up their kids in righteousness. And so that's pretty much what Job's friends are doing. They're looking at this world and saying, well, you reap what you sow. 
You reap what you sow. And Job, you've reaped devastation. You've reaped suffering. And therefore, what is it that you sowed? What was it that you did? Just name it so that you can repent, be restored to God, and maybe he would be kind. But we know that that's not what Job did. And so Job needs an answer. He needs an answer. And he knows where to find that answer. We see it actually in chapter 23, and he says this in verse 3. He says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And then actually in chapter 9, Job says a similar thing, and he adds how terrifying this would be, but he says, I need to talk with God. I need to talk with God. That's the person I need to talk about. Because according to Job, only God could vindicate him. Only God could vindicate him. His friends are accusing him, and it's only God who could stand up and say, hey, it wasn't Job's sin that caused all of this suffering to to befall your friend Job. And so he wants to meet with God. He wants a vindication of God in the midst of his friends. But Job also wants something else. You see, Job also wants an audience with God to discuss God's own job performance. Job wants to discuss God's own job performance because Job has a fairness meter. We all have a fairness meter. And Job's got one here, and he says, what's happened to me, my kids, my suffering, everything, it's not fair. It's not fair. In chapter 13, we, Job says this. He says, why do you hide your face, speaking to God, and count me as your enemy? Or in chapter 16, he says this. He, speaking about God, has torn me in his wrath and hated me. Or chapter 19, Job says, Know that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. And then in chapter 30, Job says, You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Job wants an audience with God to be vindicated before his friends and also in order to talk with God and say, what you've done to me feels unfair. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever have experiences in which your fairness meter just goes off and you just raise up your hands and go, it's just not fair. This isn't how the world is supposed to happen. Maybe you were pursuing your buddy who doesn't know Jesus and the day of reckoning was coming upon and you're like, all right, I'm going to share the gospel and you're just going to pursue them and you're excited and you do and it goes terribly wrong and you're embarrassed and maybe something happens in the friendship and you go, God, I was obedient. I followed you and look what this happened. It feels unfair. In high school, 
I met a guy named Brian, and he quickly became one of my best friends. And we both went to different colleges, and eventually he became a medical doctor. And we lost touch over the years, and then eventually he actually called me up and said, hey, I'm in Corvallis, you wanna get out lunch? And I was ecstatic, I got to see my friend. And so we got up lunch, and he told me, I'm moving to Corvallis. And I was so excited, because this is the thing about Brian. Brian, one of my best friends growing up, he doesn't know Jesus. And it's just random. I mean, just think of how random moving to Corvallis is. And so I'm instantly going, I know what God's doing here, right? God's sending Brian here. And so I was doggedly after Brian from the start. He would come over all the time. We'd hang out. He went to my daughter's preschool recital. We'd go on family hikes together. We'd have him over for dinner. I'd hang out with him all of the time, all in attempts to build a deeper relationship. And every time we hung out, as far as I can remember, every time we hung out, inevitably the conversation turned spiritual and we started talking about Jesus. Paul in Romans talks about how um, that he would be accursed or he would go to hell if the Jewish people would come to know Jesus. He just felt such an affinity with them. He wanted them so desperately to come to know Jesus that he said, I would go to hell for them. And if you have those friends who don't know Jesus, that you just love so much, that you just want them to know Jesus, you know what Paul's talking about. And now it's Brian for me. And so one day I remember praying for him and I, I read a, a blog and this blog was talking about this missionary doctor in a unengaged, unreached people group and he needs another doctor. And instantly my mind started going, oh my gosh, think about if Brian becomes a Christian. He's single, he's one of, those, he's one of the more rugged people I've ever met in my entire life. He is one of the most disciplined people And instantly, my prayer life was just thriving, and I started grabbing promises of God, fulfilling the Great Commission, and saying, God, you've got to convert Brian. You've got to, because if you do, guess what? You could send him to this people, and he could practice medicine, and the gospel could be forward. God, this has got to be in your plan. Please, God. And I just begged God. I was so excited about the possibility and the potential of Brian. And then... Brian texted me and said, hey, um, let's grab lunch again. And we did. And he told me he got a job in Washington and he was leaving. And I remember the last time we hung out, I once again brought up God and Jesus and we started having a religious conversation, but there was just nothing. There was just no turn, no repentance, no confession, no desire to follow God or even believe that he for the most part, existed and could interact with him. And he left. And I remember that day I went on a run, which is not that. I don't go on that many runs. And I went on a run, and I was at CV just making laps, and I just, I I was just frustrated. I was just broken. It just felt unfair. It felt like God sent Brian, and it was cruel. He sent Brian, got me a taste of what that could look like, and then ripped him away. That's 
what Job's going through, an experience like that. So what do you, what do you say when your own justice meter is going off? When you feel like me, when you feel like Job, and you look out on the world, you look at the hand that you were dealt, and you just say, it's not fair, regardless of what it is. Job, here in chapter 38, he wants an audience with God. He wants vindication from his friends. He wants vindication from God. And he wants God to explain why he had acted unfairly to him. And we get to verse 1, chapter 38, which says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, which I just want to pause for a second before we jump into the rest. This is monumental. God shows up and speaks. So in the Bible, there's a, there is one true God, and he has many names. And there are other gods that other nations and people worship. You can think of Baal. You can think of the gods of Cain, uh, the Canaanites. You can think of um, all of these different gods, the Egyptian gods. And so there's a differentiating and a comparing contrasting of those gods that other people worship, the untrue gods and the true God. But one thing in particular I want to highlight as it relates to our text, and it's this. We see it actually in the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, in which he's taunting the prophets of Baal. And he says, what about Baal? He says, he's silent. He's mute. You see, all, all other gods are silent, they're mute. But the true God, he speaks. Isn't that wonderfully comforting in the midst of what Job has gone through and in the midst of whatever you're going through or whatever you will go through, that God actually speaks into your life, into your situation? And that's what God does. The silence doesn't just waffle in the air. God enters into Job's story, and he speaks. He speaks. And what does he say? Well, there's two long speeches broken up between Job's response. We're only going to focus on the first one. I'll reference briefly the second one. And really, there's one point. So if you're taking notes, God has one point in his speech towards Job. One point. And he's going to use different metaphors. He's going to use different illustrations. He's going to use different creatures, all to make the same point. And I, this might just be for me, but this is some of the most beautiful poetry and ever. I mean, I, I just wish I could just read it and just let, let us just sit in it. Let us just, our minds wander because it's just a beautiful poem and beautiful poetry. And what is it? What is it that Job, what is it that God wants to tell Job? Well, this is the big point. And we're gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna go through some of these sections. I'm, we're not gonna go through the entire two chapters. That would take us all night. I just wanna highlight five or six of the ways in which Jesus, uh, the ways in which God does this. But God comes out of the whirlwind and he says this. Job, your perspective on life and this world are just too small. And you can't fathom all of the details at play 
to make such an accusation. That's God's point. Basically, Job, you're not wise enough to understand or accuse me in the midst of your suffering. God is saying, I am God, and you are a mere mortal. And so what goes from chapter 38 and 39 is actually really interesting because it's, in one sense, it's a retelling of the Genesis story, of the creation story. And so he starts big, like Genesis 1 does, and then he goes smaller. So he starts with the universe, he starts with lightness and darkness, he starts with the stars, he starts with the macro, and then he goes to horses and ox and donkey. And that's how it's actually broken up. And so if you will, go with me to verse, 40, uh, go to verse 4. We're going to read verses 4 to 7 and see how God actually does this, how God says, you just can't fathom all the details of work, Job. You can't accuse me. So verse 4 says this, chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This metaphor is pretty simple. The universe is pictured as a building project. It has a foundation. It has measurements. It has precision. There are bases and sockets and pillars and cornerstones. And God's the architect of it all. And God did it. And he asks the rhetorical question, where were you? There's going to be a lot of these rhetorical questions. And the answer obviously is, I wasn't there. Obviously, Job wasn't there. And then he goes on, go to verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its feathers stand out like garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. In this, God is pictured as a commander, as a general and he orders the day and its day. He orders the night and its night. You and I were victims of season. I'm tired of the rain, okay? I went into our office today, and it smelled like someone hid a dirty, gross sock in our office. And I was just like, I got to get out of here. But I stayed. And then Trevor came, and we're like trying to find the smell, and we can't figure it out. And then we hear a knock on the door, and it's the building manager, and there was a leak. And actually, there's like standing water because there was so much rain that there's actually rain coming out of the foundation up into our, uh, uh, into our office. Sorry, Josh. It's, it smells really bad. Right? I, I'm tired of the rain. This was the, it was just one more reminder of how I'm tired of it. I love the spring and summer. I love flowers and bloom. I love mowing the lawn and just seeing a, you know, a perfect mowed yard. Or nothing's perfect, I do, but you know, it's at least mowed and you smell it. It's wonderful, and you're just sitting and looking at it. I love that. But could I just right now snap my fingers and it'd be 
summer? Could I do that? No. No, but God can. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is it? What is the way to the place where the light is disturbed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? The heavens are viewed like Costco, filled with snow and hail. Now, snow and hail, we might think, that's pretty, that's cool. But snow and hail are actually signs of a curse. They're signs of God's wrath in the Old Testament. And so what is it that God's saying? He's saying, if you were in heaven when all of these fell, when the hail and the snow, then maybe you'd know why, when, and how trouble and evil came and comes. But again, the rhetorical question is set to Job. He wasn't. How could he? Or go to verse 31. Can you bind the change of chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maserath in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lasso the stars? I took two science classes in undergrad, nutrition and astronomy. I thought astronomy would be helpful in getting a date, just you know, looking at the stars, so I took it. And I don't remember much about it. I, I can fake my way into, into thinking that I'm smarter than I am. But I remember one thing that the professor said. He said, we are just scratching the surface of our understanding of the universe. There's so much to learn. And yet, God knows it all. God controls it all. He, he places and upholds Orion, the constellations, the stars. That's how big and glorious and wonderful God is. Or go to chapter 39, starting in verse 9. Is the wild ox, and now we're, we're shifting to animals. We're shifting to the more earthly, more worldly animals to prove the exact same point. Verse 9. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your, at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrows with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys around you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave him your labor? Do your faith in him? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich have um, wave proudly, but are the pinions and plunges of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because, the God, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and the rider. God. God is creator 
He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He's all good, all powerful, all present, all knowing. And Job is just a man. And I am just a man. And you are just a man or just a woman. And that's what Job is confronted with. Job came wanting a platform to speak to God about his poor performance in administering and governing the world. And God takes Job on a cosmic field trip to explain his magnitude and magnificence. Now, I don't want you to think that God is cruel here. If God is sarcastic and biting and just kind of taking it to Job, that's not what's going on here at all, actually. You saw the consistent questions. Those are rhetorical questions. And if you know anything about a rhetorical device generally, and a rhetorical question specifically, it's that the purpose of a rhetorical question is to invite you in. It's to bring intimacy. I asked some rhetorical questions at the beginning in the introduction, right? The purpose of that was to actually bring you in to relationship, into the text, into this topic. And so that's what God's doing. He's using these rhetorical questions and then explaining the universe in order to bring intimately Job into his presence because he loves him and wants him to understand something truly profound. And what do we find? What does Job do in response to this? He just puts his hands over his face and he's silent. He's silent. And if it weren't enough, Job, God actually speaks for two more chapters. And this is, there's a lot of debate on this, but I think what's going on is God is using two mythical creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, right? They're storybook characters, right? They're, it's the boogeyman. It's the grim reaper. These are terrifying creatures, right? And he's using these creatures in order to explain something, He's using them. These are kind of demonic, satanic creatures. And his point is this. If Job had under, under, that Job had underestimated the enormity of the powers of darkness at work within this world. But God doesn't underestimate them. He calculates them all. God accounts for all of the brokenness, all of the demonic, all of the chaos, all because God is God. And so he uses these two mythical creatures in order to make the same point that he made in chapter 38 and 39. And it's that, Job, you are in no position to actually confront me and think that you need to be vindicated. Just as an illustration fact, um, have you guys ever heard of the butterfly effect? Basically, I understand it right. The butterfly effect is a theory that small changes can have enormous effects in the world. So a butterfly in, Magnol in Mongolia flapping its wing can cause a hurricane in the Caribbean. And that's why weather people have such a hard time predicting the weather because it's, there's too many possibilities. There's too many variables. There's too many butterflies, right? And yet, God sees it all. All of those tiny details, every butterfly flopping its wing, God sees it all, calculates it all, and is all wise and sovereign over all of them. The t 
tiniest amount. Just think about this. Take all of our collective knowledge, add it to the collective knowledge of this entire city and the entire world, and then compare it to God. And we still have this enormous gulf, this enormous gulf, because we're just human. We're not God. We don't even have an ability to create something unique. Just think about it for all you unique, creative people. We really don't have an ability to create something unique. Only God creates something unique, truly unique, because only God creates something out of nothing, ex nihilo. All we do is gather the raw materials that God's given to us and put them together in different order, in different um, ways, right? We just cut and paste, but it's still plagiarism, right? Right? There's no such thing as, as far as I understand, there's no such thing as a unicorn, but all we did was we said, rhino, horse, I got an idea, right? We cut and paste and put it together, right? But it's still plagiarism. We're still taking a horse. We're still taking the raw material that God's given to us and putting it together. And yet God creates out of nothing, nothing. There is nothing there. And God says, rhinoceros, horse, that's God. That's, he's amazing. God keeps everything and creates everything at bay when there was actually nothing. And so the message is loud and clear. Job, you're not in a position to understand how God governs the world. And that's the answer Job gets. Job wants to be vindicated for God. He wants to be in God's presence. He asks the why questions of suffering, and God comes to him and says, you're not in a position to receive that information. You're not wise enough. You're not big enough. You're not omniscient. You can't know that. That's the main point. Now, I wonder, I'm guessing, maybe that doesn't feel like an answer, like God's skirting it. Maybe God should have said, this is how my sovereignty works out. This is how human responsibility, and you've got this, um, this huge debate going on on Calvinism army. I'll solve it, and I'm going to explain it. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, well, what was really going on is I was hanging out in heaven, and Satan can't. He doesn't explain that. Or he doesn't say, this is how justice works out. He doesn't say that. He just says, I'm God. You are not. And you, as a result, can't understand now, the reason why God does this is the most important thing to all of us that we could ever imagine. It's extremely important that we realize the reason why God is interacting with Job in this way, because it's the most important point that I want you all to leave, because Job knew all of this. You know all of this if you're a Christian. You believe that God is big and you are small. You believe that God is God, that he's in charge, and he's Lord and creator and sovereign. You believe those truths. And so God wasn't merely reinforcing Job's belief. He's not trying to reinforce our beliefs. What he's doing is he's asking Job to do something in light of who he is. It's something terrifying, but it's all Job's God. And it's all we've got in the midst of suffering. It's to trust him. God asks Job, in the midst of who I am, my magnitude, my glory, my wonder, I'm going to ask you, Job, and you can't fathom 
all the details going on here. I just need you to trust me. Job's been wrestling with suffering since pretty much chapter two. And God graciously speaks to him and he cries out in this beautiful poem and poetry. And he just says, I am God and you are not and you need to trust me. And the only illustration I can think through to kind of nail this point home is the idea of parent and child. If, if you're here, um, you, I hear this all the time, and it's, it's very, very true, that children grow up fast. And my daughter is six years old, it's, or almost six years old, sorry. My daughter, my wife's going like this. She's almost six years old. And um, I remember getting a crash course into parenting because it didn't go to plan when she was born. And so everything was going great, and Sadie was born. And the midwife was really chill about it, but all of a sudden, doctors and nurses kind of rushed in to the scene. And we're just ecstatic, we're count, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes, like this is great. But she was kind of grunting because she swallowed ambiotic fluid when she came out. And so the doctors were doing these tests, and then all of a sudden they whisked her away, and they're like, You're, Stephen, come with us. And she goes to the intensive care wing of the hospital. And there she is, tiny, and I'm sitting next to her, and I don't, you know, it's just a whirlwind. It's just this surreal moment. It's my first daddy moment. And I'm sitting there, and they're putting all these tubes on her and giving her uh, ways to help her breathe, and they're poking her with all these things, and she's crying. She just doesn't know what's going on, and I, it was my daddy moment. And so I pulled a chair next to her, and I sat down, and I, she didn't understand anything that was going on. I couldn't sit down with her and say, okay, Sadie, that's a doctor. That's a tube, right? This shot, they're testing your blood sugar. I had no ability to communicate with her and explain what was going on. And so all I did was I just sat next to her. Then I just said, I love you. Fight. I love you. Just trust me. It's going to be okay. Just trust me and it's going to be okay. Because that's all I had. I just said, I'm, da I'm, I'm daddy. I doubled down on my daddy rights at that moment to comfort her. And God, he doubles down on his creator rights to comfort Job and to remind him, you just need to trust me, Job. I love you. I, I didn't leave my daughter and God didn't leave Job. He was there all along. God spoke, he explained his magnitude and he whispered from a whirlwind, Job, you just have to trust me. You just have to trust me. So when suffering comes, as it will, and you have questions, as you will, as I have questions, realize that actually Job wasn't the first one to have questions. We're not the first ones to have questions. There's actually uh, God himself Jesus had one of the most important questions that's ever been asked. It's a Job-like question. We see it in the garden. Here's Jesus wrestling with what's going on, the suffering, the evil that was about to come upon him. 
and he's gazing at being whipped. And he's understanding that he's going to be tortured. And he gets that he's going to die and that he's going to be mocked and he's going to be betrayed. And not only that, he sees that literally the Trinity in a real fundamental sense is going to get ripped apart as the Father is going to turn his face from the Son when he becomes the wrath of God in our place, the scapegoat, the substitute. And he sees all this, the horror of that moment in the garden. He knows it's coming, and he asks a question. Three times he asks the same question to his father. If there's any other way? Is there any other way? And there's silence. Because Jesus knew something. He knew that that was the only way to restore humanity back to the Father. And he had something that all of us need desperately in order to live in this life. He had trust. As he gazed up, he said, but not my will, Father, but yours be done. He trusted God in the midst of the most unspeakable suffering that could ever befall another human. And when probably all of us would distrust the plan, Jesus trusted the Father and the plan, and he bent his knee in humble obedience to it. So where does that leave us? I think it leaves us exactly where it leaves Job, in the arms of God, a God worth trusting, a God so enormous and glorious and wonderful and and loving that we can put our complete and utter trust that no matter what you're going through, no matter what cards you've been dealt, no matter how unfair it feels, and no matter how much you want an answer to the question of why has this become me, we're left in the same position of Job to say, though he slay me, I will yet trust him.